Well, as we look to God's word this evening, I want to begin by asking you a question. What or who do you look to for security? What makes you feel safe and secure? Whether we thought about it or not, we spend a lot of time trying to build security. We have bank accounts or retirement funds or investments. We have health or life insurance. We take care to eat properly prepared foods as to not contract diseases from the foods. We exercise to stay fit, or at least some of us try. We work hard in order to keep our jobs so that we have a salary so that we can provide for our families. We strive to give our children a good education so they can have a good job. We work hard to keep up appearances so that people's approval stays secure. We have locks on our doors. We have security guards in front of our buildings. I have one friend uh, back home who actually bought a house, and this house was, was built with a bunker. This is like an underground flat uh, in case of emergencies. It had all these safety things in there. It had a year's worth of canned food in case of war or an alien invasion. If the aliens come down, you could go into this bunker, you could lock the big doors, and you'd have food to eat for the whole year just in case they'll be ready. But it's hard to find ultimate security, right? You can do all these things, but it's hard to have perfect security. And yet we all look to something. Israel looked to a lot of things. We're going to see tonight that Israel looked to an earthly leader, a governor, a king. One of the biggest areas we're tempted to look for security and is in government. If we can just get a new president, if we can just get a new king or premier in our home country, then things will be great. Then we'll be better. Then we'll be able to flourish. Then we can go back there and have a better life. But elections come, elections go, and what happens? Well, prospective presidents and premiers make promises, but these promises are always proven faulty. No leader can perfectly keep their word. But Israel thought they knew better than God did. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. You'll find the first five books of the Old Testament or the Pentateuch, and then you see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you'll come to 1 Samuel. It's the book we've been in these past couple months. It's in your bulletin on page 6 if you don't have a Bible. Last week we saw that Israel was starting to get it. It was a good week. They repent. They smash their idols. That's not a worldly sorrow that ended with wet eyes. It wasn't a fake repentance due to embarrassment or earthly consequences. This was a sorrow that owned their sin and brought them to God. Instead of trying to twist God's arm and looking to the ark as a good luck charm, they cry out to God for help and God gives them victory. But Israel's path in following Yahweh is up and down. As we read through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and as we read through the Old Testament, we see that it's up and down, up and down. And there's a major setback here in chapter 8. Israel looked for security but failed to realize they already had all the security they needed. The main point in our passage is this, to trust the king of kings because only he can bring you true security. I have one main point, and then we'll see three movements 
in the text, but the main point is this. Trust the king of kings because only he can bring you true security. And there's three movements, three, three sections. Number one, we'll see the demand for a new king. That's in verses one through six. The demand of a new king, the demand for a new king. Number two, we'll see that that demand means a rejection of the true king. So number two, the rejection of the true king, verses seven through nine, and then we'll come back to it in verses 19 through 22. And then number three, we'll see the warning of a worldly king. In verses 10 through 18, the warning of a worldly king, a demand, a rejection, and a warning. Well, first, let's look at the demand for a new king. Look at verse one. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. and the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We'll stop there. Well, Samuel was a great leader. We've, we've been tracking with him. We've been, been looking at him in these first chapters. But the Israelites felt like their security was threatened and they needed a new leader. And there's two reasons listed in the text. Number one, Samuel was old. Now I need to tell you something. I don't actually know exactly how old Samuel was here in this text, but I can tell you this. He was 58 years old when he died. 58, that's it. And of course, if 50 is the new 40, then 58 is the new 48, and Samuel wasn't that old. He wasn't old at all. I mean, just a piece of advice for you. This is free of charge today as your pastor to you. It's never a good idea to tell people they're old. It's never a good idea to tell someone they look really, really old. It's not very encouraging. Let's just say that you're allowed to tell someone that they're old if they're 100 years old. I think it's a good stand. If I'm 100, I want you to tell me that I'm old. And I want to say, amen, praise God. I think that's a compliment when you're 100. But I think here, I think it's just an excuse. I think that's not the real reason that the Israelites are standing up against Samuel. And the second reason for their demand was that Samuel had made his sons judges and those sons weren't following God. Who does this remind you of? Well, here we go again. Samuel's sons were no better than Eli's sons. Remember Eli, the high priest, his sons turned to wine and women instead of worship. Samuel's sons were taking bribes, perverting justice. I mean, one wouldn't have been judged for thinking that Samuel would have good sons. Even their names pointed to this. Joel means Yahweh is God. Abijah means my father is Yahweh. But parents, holiness is not hereditary. Your offspring don't automatically become followers of Christ. You did not genetically inherit your faith from your biological parents, and you can't genetically pass off faith to your children as if it's somehow automatic that a Christian gives birth to Christians. That's not how it works. Faith is a gift from our heavenly father, period. 
And so parents, you can be a great parent. You can lead your children spiritually. You can lead family devotions. You can model to your children a great humility. You can pray with them. You can pray for their salvation every single night. You can have quantity time with them. You can have quality time with them. You can take them to our youth group or kids ministry. You can bring them here to our Friday worship gatherings. You can do all of this and they could still reject Christ. You could love them well. They can reject Jesus. See, the difficult yet freeing reality is that we can't make anybody believe. We can't force anybody into salvation. Yes, we work tirelessly. We work hard. And if we're a parent, we work as hard as we can to see our kids believe. We, we, we work at it and we pray at it. But it's freeing to remember that it's God who will draw them to himself. Well, here, while the job of the priesthood was hereditary, so Eli was to pass the priesthood to his children normally, it was God who appointed judges. Appointing his sons as judges was a strange thing for Samuel to do. Now, we don't know the state of Samuel's sons when he appointed them. Were they already taking bribes? Were they perverting justice? Were they, were they living uh, a, a godless life when he appointed them? Or did this come later? after they were down in Beersheba. We don't know. We know Samuel's based in Ramah, which is further to the north. He was a circuit preacher. We, we saw back in 1 Samuel 7 means he went around from town to town. He would, he would judge. He would deal with difficult cases between people. He would, he would preach God's word, and he went from town to town. Now, Beersheba is way down south. It's quite a distance away, 100 kilometers down south. So why did Samuel appoint his sons? Well, we don't know, but maybe he's trying to share the load of judging with them. You know, it's a far way, and so he sends his two sons. Why don't you go down to Beersheba? Why don't you judge there? I'll take further north. You take down there. Well, regardless of what his sons were doing when Samuel appointed them, certainly he should have pulled them out of judging now. I mean, this is ridiculous. The problem wasn't with the system of the judges. The problem was with the judges themselves. Now, up to this part of Israel's history, God was their king. He ruled through a human judge or a mediator. This judge would pray. He would get God's leading. They would render justice in various cases. So Moses acted as a judge. Joshua they were essentially judges. You read the actual book of the judges and you see a, a long list of judges. And then here we have Samuel, who's going to become the, the last judge. Well, how does Israel respond to Samuel and his sons? Well, there's a gathering of the leaders of Israel, and they obviously have a pre-meeting to the big meeting. They've been in touch with each other, and they're going to come to Samuel with what they think is a solution. But it wasn't much of a discussion. It was a demand. We demand a king. Well, how soon do they forget that they already had a king? Well, this is chapter eight. What, what about chapter seven? I mean, they set up an Ebenezer to commemorate God's greatness and kingship. It was set up there in the land. They forgot about chapter seven. A Christian friend, don't forget about chapter seven. Difficult times will come. There will be days when you struggle with depression. There are days when your anxiety will come and go. Doubt will creep into your mind. There'll be physical aches and pains that take over your body. There'll be family tensions. There'll be parental pressure. There'll be school stress. You'll face relational issues. You'll feel left out and alone. There'll be times of plenty, but there, there are going to be times of want in all of our lives in some way. Will you remember chapter 7? 
on that day of want, on that day of pain, will you remember chapter seven? Will you remember God's faithfulness in the past as we deal with our present and as we deal with our unknown future? Will we trust that God's faithfulness in the past is a model and a promise of his faithfulness in the future? Don't forget chapter seven, Redeemer Church. Don't forget what God has done. Israel forgot. They forgot. And they looked to substitute gods, as we've seen, Baal, the Astaroth, and now they're looking to a substitute king. The elder meeting was a good thing. It's good to gather together. The agenda looks positive. I mean, what should we do about Samuel and his sons? That's a good question. His kids were wayward. That's the right question. But what should they have asked Samuel instead? Well, they should have asked Samuel to remove his sons. They should have asked Samuel to appeal to God and to ask God to give them guidance as to who should take over for the sons and as to who should take over for Samuel one day. They should have pleaded for God to bring new judges. See, if Samuel and his sons were the real problem, that's what they would have done. There's got to be more going on here. What's the Israelites' real motivation? Was this really about Samuel at all? His age, his sons? Well, that seems to be the excuse for getting what they really wanted. Look again to the end of verse 5. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, here's their heart. Their biggest problem wasn't with the judges. There was a deeper spiritual problem going on. The problem wasn't with the system. The problem was with their souls. Israel doubted that God would provide the security they needed, and they wanted to be like all the other nations. It's just a problem with the ark. They looked to the ark for security, and now they're looking to a worldly king for security. The other nations have one. I mean, look around. The Canaanites, Philistia, they all have them. Why can't we have one? Why can't we be just like them? Why not us? Well, Israel is willing to throw away their special status as God's chosen people in order to identify themselves with the nations of the world. That's what they're doing. Now, that'll preach, right? That'll preach to us today, won't it? I mean, Israel was called to be distinct to not look like everyone else. They were to leverage. They were to be God's special people, God's designated, unique people. They were to be a light for God in the darkness. But now they just want to live in the shadows and be like everyone else. This is a challenge for us. And we see how easy life is for those unknown to follow God at times. And, and we think, wow, maybe if we just live like them, we'd be happier. We'd be more fulfilled. We'd have more security. They aren't concerned with God's will and what pleases him. Maybe that's the way to go. I mean, at work, are we tempted to take the same shortcuts as our coworkers, to cut corners on work hours, to fudge the numbers just a little bit? Or tweens and teens, are there ways you struggle with wanting to be like your friends who don't know the Lord? How about your words? I remember in my life back in grade nine, I was on the track and field team and my teammates had the 
the worst language. It was foul. It was dirty, all kinds of curse words. I didn't even understand the meaning of half of them, but I just jumped in and joined them. I just repeated them. I went overboard because it felt good to fit in, felt good to be like them. They never made me say them, but I wanted to be like them in every way. Oh, teen and tween, how's your language? How are your words? Do you sound like everyone else? Or how about when other kids are making fun of someone, do you join in? Do you approve of gossip with your silence? Are you tempted to cheat on your exams just because the other kids are doing it? Or do you stand up for what's right? Church, how about those statements we might call little white lies? Are you tempted to twist the truth and get someone to, to like you? Do you join in gossip and slander because it makes you feel good and helps you fit in? See, little white lies are simply lies. There's nothing little about them. Well, does looking like the world keep us from evangelism? University students, I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for the opportunity that you have to share the gospel on your uni campuses. But do you fail to share sometimes because you're worried about what people are gonna think of you if you talk to them about Jesus? Friend in the workplace, does your coworker know that you follow Christ? Do they know you're a Christian? And does your life back up your words? Well, Israel was called to be distinct, and so are we. In all this, verse 6, Samuel is displeased. The translation literally reads, the matter was evil in Samuel's eyes. He goes to the Lord in prayer. This is a good response for a sad and depressed man. He went to the Lord. Israel demanded a king, which Samuel knows was really the rejection of another king. That's the second movement in our text, the second point, the rejection of a king. We've seen the demand for a king, but see, that demand for a king was actually the rejection of a king. That's the second point here. It's the rejection of the true king. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, Samuel, this is not about you. This really just proves everything we just said in the first point. It really wasn't about Samuel's age. It wasn't about Samuel's sons. God is telling Samuel, this is not about you. It's about me. In asking for an earthly king, they've rejected me. In a real sense, they're saying that they didn't want to be Israel anymore. Instead of being God's special people, they're, they're going to Samuel and they're saying, we just want to be like everyone else. We want to drop our special status. We want to be like the world. And forget about being salt and light. Just look, just let us look like the rest of them. We want God for his stuff. So give us a king. Well, they wanted independence from God. It was pride. It's a sin of the Garden of Eden. It's a sin of saying to God, I know better how my life should go better than you do. Well, instead, they should have remembered that Israel didn't need an earthly king to be delivered in the Exodus. The Red Sea crossing, when God parted the sea, they didn't need an earthly king for that. And I love thinking about the battle of Jericho. I talk about it often. I think it's one of my favorite scenes. Maybe it's one of my favorite scenes because I'm disabled. And even with my disability in my arms, I could have been in this army. 
I could have been in that battle because God gives them the craziest battle plan in all of history. So he says, here you go, soldiers. Here's what I want you to do. Before you go in the battle, here's your strategy. I want you to put down your weapons. Now, I've never been in the military before, so I can't say too much, but that sounds like the worst strategy ever. Now, put down your weapons. And what he tells them to do is he tells them to march around the walled city for six days and to be quiet. Shh. Don't talk. Just just walk. Go around. And on the seventh day, here's what I want you to do. I want you to blow some trumpets and I want you to shout as loud as you can. I mean, that's a bizarre strategy. Joshua, go start a marching band and go. Now, why did God design it that way? Well, God designed it this way so that the Israelites would know that when that wall fell, it was God who was their king. He wanted them to know clearly and without a doubt that God was the one who fought before them. And how about here in 1 Samuel? How does Israel get the ark back? Was it by some strategic sneak attack? No, remember just from a few weeks ago, remember who the heroes were, earthly speaking, in getting the ark back from Philistia? It was the cows. (laughs) Remember? It was the cows. The most obedient characters in the story were two cows who took the ark back to Israel. Now, weakness is always the way in God's plan. It's through our weakness that God reveals his strength. Weakness is the way because God is our king. And God says to Samuel, this has been Israel's story since I brought them out of Egypt. Verse eight, but they're forsaking me since then and they're forsaking you now. Verse nine, now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Okay, Samuel, go ahead. Go ahead and and do it. Give them a king, but warn them first. We'll come back to this second point at the end. We'll pick up the rejection again in verse 19. But before we get there, the text pauses with a parenthesis. It's, It's a warning, and it's the third movement of our text. We've seen the demand for a king, the rejection of the true king. Here, we're going to see the warning of a worldly king. It's a warning. And this is grace upon grace. You know, they've rebelled against God. They've rejected God. They've demanded another king. And God's going to take the time to warn them. He didn't have to do this. But listen to the warning. Verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. It was his custom that back in those days, it was the custom for 50 men to escort the royal chariot. And as the chariot went, these 50 men would, would run ahead of the king and ahead of the chariot, declaring the greatness of the king so that all could, 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 could hear. There were, there were forerunners. And God is saying, we're going to take men from your sons to be these forerunners. And in verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. The king is going to want an army. The king is going to want some soldiers. Well, how's he going to get them? What's going to be your sons? Who's going to do his cooking and planning for his parties? Well, your women aren't going to get to stay at home. Verse 13, he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers, to be cooks and bakers. 
And this king will want to take the best of your land and to give it to his own people. He's going to take your inheritance, verse 14. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. And he's going to put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks. You shall be his slaves. Israel, is this what you want? Well, do you notice key words in this section as I read? Six times the word take is used. Over and over again, take, take, take. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your fields, he'll take your grain, he'll take your servants, he'll even take your animals. He's going to take it all. Another key word in verses 14 and 16 is the word best. You notice that? He'll take your best fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He'll take the best of your young men and donkeys. Your sons will be gone. Your daughters will be taken. Don't think your property will be secure. The king will take your best. And there'll be taxes. You know how much we love taxes. There's going to be plenty of taxes. The king is going to be a burden on your family, your property, your finances, and even your flock. There will be no freedom. You have to support the king. This king can't be the king unless you make him the king. This king can't be the king unless you give him your stuff. It's a man-made king. It's a warning from God saying, hey, this is a king of your own making. Well, God is incredibly patient. Warning after warning, my people, my children. Oh, my children, you don't want this. You think that king will be your champion, but he's going to be your tyrant. You think you'll gain, but you'll lose. Then we get the ultimate warning in verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Fine, you'll get what you want. You'll get what you want, but you'll find out it's not really what you wanted. You'll cry out, and this is a powerful line, you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. You wanted it. And here's a sober warning. The Lord will not answer you in that day. You're gonna get what you want, but you didn't really want it. He's gonna be not a champion, but a tyrant. And on that day, you're gonna cry out, you're gonna call out to me, and I won't answer. God is so kind and patient to, to warn them to warn them ahead of that day. But will they respond well now? Well, we've seen their demand for a king. We've seen the rejection of the true king. And here we see God comes through with a passionate plea, a warning for his people. Will this change their rejection? Well, sadly, no. Our last verses continue our second point. So let's go back there. Um, to the second point, but let's look at the end of our passage. It's the rejection of a king continued. Look at verse 19. Nothing Samuel could say could change the people's mind. Look there. Their minds were made up. They refused to obey Samuel. 
Now, at this point, as we read, we're towards the end of the chapter, we're beginning to cringe. If we put ourselves in the story, we're beginning to, to cringe. We're looking at Israel and saying, Israel, don't do it. Stop. Stop. Don't go that way. Don't go that direction. Don't look to an earthly king. We know how this is going to go. We, we've seen the warning. We know how it's going. Israel, stop. Go a different direction. As, as I read this, I was reminded of the literary genre of suspense novels and horror films. I mean, if you've seen a horror film, every plot is the same. Every scene is the same. It's the same story. Every film is filled with foolish characters. It's filled with ignorant and naive people, right? Because they hear a noise in the back room and there's a thunderstorm outside and the power goes out, it's dark, and there's been criminal activity in the neighborhood. There's been murders in the neighborhood, but they, they think to themselves, I'm going to get a torch and I'm going to go check out the noise. And so they do, and you're cringing as you're reading or as you're watching this unveil. You're cringing because you know what's going to happen. You know it's going to end badly. Don't go into the basement. Don't go into the back room. But they go. Well, that's what's happening here. We're, we're, we're reading this and we're cringing. Israel, don't do it. Don't go in that direction. Don't go in that way. It's not going to end well. We know the story. It's the same story. When we turn our backs to God, it never ends well. All the warnings are here. They're going the way of death. The consequences are clear and we can't do anything to stop them. Why are they going to their death? Verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Here comes the motives again. We get the same one again and then we get an additional uh, couple. First, we just want to be like everyone else. Again, they're just being honest. They're just telling us we want to look like everyone else. And then there's another uh, set of reasons. We want a king to judge us. I don't trust you, Samuel. And then we want a king to fight our battles. We don't trust that, that our heavenly king is going to fight them for us. Now, Deuteronomy 17, if you know your Pentateuch, it gave provision for a future kingship. But not for these reasons. And the security of Yahweh should have been enough, but they wanted more. And in looking for more, they got less. Verses 21 and 22. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. God's going to give them what they demand. He's going to answer their cries. And we'll see. It's not going to end well. As I read this, I couldn't help but think that the people are going to get what they want, but it's not really what they want. They think they know better than what God does, but the joke's on them. And it's not very funny. God grants their request. Now, yesterday I was listening to some music as I was working on this section of the sermon. And as I was working here on these final verses, this reminded me of an old country song. Now I have to confess, I, I like country music. Maybe not all of it, but I like some country music. It has a special place in my heart from living in Texas, USA for university and for seminary. And I would admit that some of the lyrics are funny. I know that virtually every song is about tractors and cowboy boots or about your dog running away. Now, I know this is true. 
Now, there's a song there that came to mind yesterday. It's not a catechism. It's not a theological primer, uh, but some of the lines go like this. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. And just because he may not answer doesn't mean he don't care. Now, I know the grammar is off, but you get the idea. It goes on. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered. Some of God's greatest gifts are all too often unanswered. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Now, since Yahweh will sometimes give us our requests to our own peril, we shouldn't be too upset for those times that we don't get what we wanted. His refusals are not indifference, but maybe kindness. Sometimes unanswered prayers are a gift from God. Guess they all are, really, right? If God is sovereign, our answered prayers are gifts from the Lord. Think back to unanswered prayers in your life. I thought back to a couple of things. One, I think back to the time that Gloria and I were looking to move overseas. We were headed towards southern Spain. We took multiple trips. We actually had one trip where we got a, a, a car in Barcelona and we drove all the way a full circumference, full circle uh, around the edge of Spain over a month. And we went back several times and we started speaking to churches about it. We built connections. We started raising funds. We built a team. We were dead set on heading towards Spain. We were, we were ready. We were excited. And then, and then God stopped it. We had been praying for it and then God stopped us and prevented us from going there. And it was discouraging. It was disheartening. It was an unanswered prayer. And we were like, God, what is going on? But what did we have waiting for us instead, even though we didn't know it? Well, Redeemer Church of Dubai. You, us. And I think to our venue search now, we're still in the middle, middle of it. There have been some surprising no's. There have been things that we were excited about. I can think of at least a couple of places that I was super distressed and heartbroken that didn't go through. There's some, some places we, we, were, we were right there, super excited about what this could mean for our church. And then at the very last second, it all fell apart. And while the end of the story is not written yet, friend, God knows better than we do. We trust him that our unanswered prayers are actually God's grace to us. Now, answered prayer is not always an answer of God's favor. Sometimes it's of God's judgment. That's what we see here as the Israelites are crying out to Samuel and crying out to God. Sometimes God's kindness is not answering our prayers in the exact way we pray. And friend, if you've been praying for something, I don't know what it is, Tonight, maybe you desperately need a job. I know many of you are praying. I know many of you are dealing with, with health issues. I know many of you are dealing with family tension or being separated from your children. There's heartache here in this room. You've been answering or asking God a specific prayer. Maybe you've been toiling over that prayer time and time again, and God just hasn't answered yet. Oh, friend, first of all, I'm so Sorry you're in that season, but I do want to tell you tonight that we need to realize that God knows better than we do as to how our lives should go. So if you're crying out to God, keep crying out to God. Don't stop, but wait on him. Wait. Wait. Wait on him and his timing. 
might think you know, but you can't see the full picture. It's because success in God's eyes is not the same as ours. In God's plan, it's not about bigger. It's not about better. It's not about richer and more and approval and, and gain and strength. And his timing's not necessarily fast or quick. God is loving. He's just, and he's also patient. And he's always doing a million things we can't see with our eyes in that moment. His ways are not our ways. And here, Israel, they think they're winning. Yes, God has given us a king. Oh, but in, in God, in answering them, there's judgment to come. We all long for the perfect leader, perfect president, perfect king, boss, or pastor. We long for the perfect parents. But friend, parents and pastors and presidents will one day fail you. Only God can give you perfect security. We should cry out to him as our king. See, with the Israelites here, they cry out for a king here in chapter 8. What else does this remind us of? Well, Sushma read earlier from John 18. How about these words from John 19? You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these words. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate, who was the governor, he said to the Jews, behold, your king. The Jews cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Well, the chief priests answered, oh, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. They took Jesus and they crucified him between two thieves. And Pilate, he wrote an, an inscription there, on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They gave this so-called king a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. It was meant to be a mockery. They were making fun of him. By saying he's the king, they're saying, actually, he's far from the king. He's a traitor. He's a liar. He's a fake they were, they were making fun of him. They were mocking him. They were showing just the opposite. But in all ironies, John knows, and we all know as believers in Christ, that that man really is the king of the Jews, that they're actually telling the truth. In fact, he's not just the king of the Jews. He's more than the king of the Jews. He's king over the whole world from eternity past to eternity present. This is the king over all. He's even more than the king of the Jews. Oh, how tragic this scene is in 1 Samuel 8 when they reject their heavenly king and then in John 19 when they reject the king who had come for them. And the question then for us tonight is, will you look to this king? Will you look to this king or will you look to the world for your king? Earthly kings take and take and take. King Jesus loves and loves and loves. He loves children. He loves the lepers. He'll spend time sharing truth with the prostitutes. He'll have dinner with the tax collectors and the sinners. Earthly kings seek their own welfare and material possessions. King Jesus laid down his life and he laid it down freely. Earthly kings take and take and take. King Jesus gives and gives and gives. He came not to, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Earthly kings build up their own kingdom, but Jesus died to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. He died to share heavenly treasure with us. Earthly kings were fallible, sinful humans. King Jesus is the only sinless human to ever live in the history of the world. He is truly man and truly God, fully man and fully God. He is God who became flesh. He is Emmanuel, God who is with us. And this king who came, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Now, no earthly king could do this. No earthly king could die, be thrown in a tomb and rise from the dead on the third day. Oh, friend, if you're here and you don't know this king, don't reject him. Don't make the mistake the Israelites make here in 1 Samuel 8. Don't reject him. King Jesus gives us his life. He gives his righteousness to us. He gives forgiveness to us. He gives heaven to us. He gives it all to us freely because of his work. Our Redeemer Church, look to the King of Kings, for he alone is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Jesus is the only King worthy of our worship. <clears throat> Would we look to him for our safety and security? Would we look to him to fill our hearts with contentment and comfort? Would we look to the King of Kings to give us significance and meaning? Would we look to the King of Kings to give us approval? Would we look to the King of Kings to give us all things? Oh, Father, would we not look to this world? We know that this world will fail us, that ultimately people will fail us, that ultimately pastors and premiers and presidents will fail us. You alone are worthy to be praised. And King Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would we remember this now and forevermore? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.